Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brotmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, author and activist Stetson Kennedy has been preserving Florida culture and working to improve it for almost 75 years, and at the age of 93, he's still going strong. And the oral history, of course, is a participant and a witness, at least. And uh, they're, they're seeing it with all their sensory organs. And for that reason, there's more validity from my point of view. We'll remember Watke's Department Store, which opened in 1942 in Vero Beach. At that time, women, when they dressed up, you weren't completely dressed up if you didn't have hat and gloves. And we'll visit with some of the original Wikiwachi mermaids. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. I done spent my last three cents Mailing my letter to the president make a show, I didn't make a dent, so I'm swinging over to this independent chain. Stetson Kennedy writing his name in. Stetson Kennedy writing his name in. I can't win out to save my soul long Mathis DuPont's got me in the hole There were profit boys a squawking and barking That's what's got me out here Walking and talking Knocking on doors and windows Wake up and run down election morning And scribble in Stetson Kennedy the song Stetson Kennedy was written by folk legend Woody Guthrie in support of Stetson Kennedy's independent campaign for the U.S. Senate in 1950. The song was rediscovered and recorded by Billy Bragg and Wilco in 2000. Stetson Kennedy's social activism and the books that came from it have made him a Florida icon. Stetson Kennedy's career began in 1937 when he joined the WPA's Florida Writers Project. At the age of 21, he was named head of the unit on folklore, oral history, and socio-ethnic studies. Well, it was a, the Great Depression, for one thing, and I didn't have a job along with tens of millions of other Americans. And uh, at the same time, President Roosevelt had organized something called the Federal Writers Project, and I thought this would be an opportunity for a 21-year-old uh, to start a writing career. So. I signed up for the Florida Writers Project, and in a short time they did uh, elevate me to the, that position. I was wearing three hats. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston, as a matter of fact, was uh, my, I was her boss. She was not an easy one to boss, I can tell you. She fortunately worked out of her home in Eatonville, and I was in Jacksonville, so it was like that. Zora Neale Hurston's strong will is well known, and Stetson Kennedy is not the only person who had difficulty supervising her in a work setting. 
When Mary McLeod Bethune hired Hurston to run the drama department at Bethune-Cookman College, the two women disagreed about almost everything, and Hurston left the school after less than a year. Hurston's Harlem Renaissance contemporaries complained that she did not criticize race relations strongly enough in her writings, a view shared by her Florida Writers Project supervisor, Stetson Kennedy. Hurston grew up in Eatonville, the first incorporated municipality in the United States entirely governed by African Americans. This gave her a unique perspective on race and a strong sense of independence. Still, it was Hurston's lack of emphasis on racial difficulties that inspired Stetson Kennedy to make the issue a focal point of his work. Do free association with me and Zora, the first thing I think of is a little story she sent in. said one day God was on his way to Palatka and him and St. Peter was hoofing it and it went on from there. <laughs> so everything she sent in was a, a real jewel. Uh, Alan Lomax was also a good friend of mine, colleague, and he said that in the field Zora was absolutely magnificent. He was recording in Eatonville with Zora in as early as 35 and they went on out to the Everglades and then to the Georgia Sea Islands. Yeah, Zora was, was a mess. <laughs> Uh, our politics uh, were very different. Uh, uh, she never turned in any black po protest law, for example. And of course, that was one of the very few forms that the blacks could protest. If it didn't rhyme and you didn't dance a jig the while, you were dead. Uh, but Zora chose to ignore all that stuff, and so I made it one of my specialties. From 1937 to 1942, Stetson Kennedy lugged around a recorder the size of a coffee table to record the oral histories, tall tales, and folk songs of a diverse group of Floridians from cracker cowboys to Greek sponge divers to turpentine industry workers. Actually, it was a precursor to the uh, wire recorder came next uh, before the tape recorder. And this recorder was like a, a coffee table, except it took two or three good men to lift it. When we wanted to go out on the railroad tracks or on the pogey fishing boats, uh, we had to get some manpower, and it was uh, on the tracks, it was powered by two automobile batteries. So that's, that's what we had to work with. I called it the thing. The recordings that Stetson Kennedy made in the cities, towns, and rural backwoods of Florida led to the classic 1942 book, Palmetto Country. This important social history of Florida is being republished by the Florida Historical Society Press with a new afterword and 80 historic photographs. It was one of the first volumes in the American Folkways series, edited by Erskine Caldwell. And uh, we really pioneered in oral history. No one had ever heard of it at, up at that time, talking about 1935 and six. I recall here in Titusville, uh, I was interviewing an elderly black man, this is a later period, and I happened to mention the moonshot. And he said, you don't believe that stuff, do you? And I said, well, you know, he said, it's just some more of that BS the government puts out. <laughs> it was an exciting, uh, you know, field to be in. We, we had a lot of fun. Like, like kids on a treasure hunt, really. As a pioneer of oral history, Kennedy is pleased to see how the field has advanced in recent decades. Yes, uh, just recently at the Library of Congress, uh, they've launched something called StoryCorps, in which these streamlined uh, sound studios on wheels uh, are touring the country and uh, taking oral histories uh, from coast to coast. 
and they uh, honored me with letting me kick it off with an interview. And yes, indeed, it's come come a long way. I, I'm a great believer in oral history because uh, I call it the dictatorship of the, the footnote. The, the academicians uh, are quoting each other you know, instead of uh, going out and getting first-hand primary source material. And oral history, of course, is a participant and a witness, at least. And uh, they're, they're seeing it with all their sensory organs. And for that reason, it, it has more validity from my point of view. Some historians argue that oral histories are sometimes less reliable than more traditional research sources because people's memories are not always accurate. Kennedy believes that the best history comes from the recollections of everyday people. It's uh, uh, being there and uh, telling history from the bottom up is, of course, history. It's the little man that makes history and not the generals. And uh, so I like to hear from the little man. Folk musician Woody Guthrie, best known for the song This Land is Your Land, was a big fan of Stetson Kennedy's work. Guthrie spent many of his last years living in Kennedy's house in Beluthahatchee Park. I recall Guthrie saying at one time, uh, Stetson's not exactly a folklorist, he's a po-focused, uh, by which he meant, uh, I suppose, a champion of the poor, uh, one of the folk, and not writing from, from some other point of view. Yes, Woody, I uh, spent a lot of time at my place up in St. John's County. And in fact, we just discovered 80 plus songs that he wrote in St. John's County, uh, all about my place and uh, the wildlife. And uh, I remember one song called Baby Buzzard. It says, Baby Buzzard, uh, look over the on in that limousine, some of the rottenest stuff you ever seen. And <laughs> So on, 80 songs here in Florida, and it was all new material for Woody. He was writing about, he'd pick up manuscripts. I was overseas, but he'd pick up my manuscripts and ended up writing, turning them into songs. And things like chain gang and peonage and sweat boxes and things Woody had never thought about before. Uh, he made songs out of them. It was Stetson Kennedy's infiltration of the Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacist groups that earned him national and international recognition. Using the name John Perkins, Kennedy was able to secretly gather information that helped lead to the incarceration of a number of domestic terrorists. These experiences led to the 1954 book, I Rode with the Klan, which was later republished as The Klan Unmasked. I spent a lot of time in front of the mirror, you know, practicing the N-word and things like that. Uh, I didn't really have the face for it. In fact, I almost got killed. Uh, an interviewer came down from New York and I cautioned him about you know, uh, blowing my cover. But he goes back and writes about this intense young man with a poet's face. And that almost got me killed. <laughs> there weren't that many of them in the Klan. As racial tensions were rising in the United States in the 1950s, Kennedy was having difficulty getting his books exposing bigotry published. The French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, best known for the play No Exit, published Kennedy's book The Jim Crow Guide in Paris in 1956. I first uh, infiltrated uh, during the war when the Klan was afraid that uh, President Roosevelt might uh, prosecute them under the War Powers Act. So they didn't put on their robes and they changed their names to various things like uh, American Shores Patrol and American Gentile Army and things like that. So that's how it all began. And yes, it's, it was exciting to put it 
mildly. Uh, when I went overseas uh, some years later, I thought I'd get away from my nightmares, you know, being caught. But in Paris, it was raining frequently, and the French traffic cops wore white rubber raincoats with capes and hoods, and their hand signals were very much like the Klan signals, so I kept on having nightmares. Although he never forgot his roots as a native Floridian, born in Jacksonville on October 5, 1916, Stetson Kennedy did choose to live abroad for about a decade. Well, McCarthy was going on. Uh, Eisenhower was president, and he was... As presidents go, he wasn't all that bad, but there was McCarthy. And um, no, I went over to testify about slave labor uh, in the United States uh, before the United Nations in Geneva. And I went with a one-way ticket and $8 left over. So I was pretty much obliged to stay until I could, <laughs> and it took me eight years, so to speak, to raise the round trip home. Uh, during which time I saw most of Europe and North Africa and uh, across Eastern Europe as far as China. I was, I think, the first uh, independent journalist to get into China in uh, 54, I believe it was. Harry T. Moore was an educator and civil rights activist who founded the Progressive Voters League, registering tens of thousands of African-American voters in Florida. He was a statewide leader of the NAACP and fought for equal treatment for African Americans in the justice system. Before he was killed when a bomb exploded under his home on Christmas night 1951, Harry T. Moore endorsed Stetson Kennedy's campaign for the U.S. Senate. Well, I recall uh, being here in the Titusville area. I came back. Uh, Moore was blown to pieces on Christmas night of 1951, which he and his wife blown through the roof, mattress and all. Uh, I came back a decade or so later, riding around talking to people to Mims, Florida, where it happened. And there was this elderly black man sitting under a shade tree, and I walked up and asked if he remembered uh, the night. And he said, uh, remember? He said, how could I ever forget? He said, uh, sounded like a cannon going off. I said to myself, a uh, strange way to be celebrated Christmas night. Uh, Moore and I went back, well, I, I was on the Moore case before it happened, you might say. I had announced for the United States Senate as an independent, colorblind uh, candidate for total equality. This is 1950, when, uh, you know, it took a lot less than that to get you killed and Moore's organization of, of black Floridian voters uh, called a meeting and invited the Democratic and Republican candidates and me to speak to them. And I'm the only one who showed up. And so they endorsed me unanimously. And so that's how it, it didn't really begin there because I had attended uh, meetings with Moore, state NAACP meetings in Ocala and Orlando. Uh, so that uh, we were acquainted before that campaign. But I always felt guilty that the feeling that uh, my campaign, his endorsement of it, uh, played a major part in getting him killed. Stetson Kennedy's classic Florida book, Palmetto Country, is published by the Florida Historical Society Press.
ain't the world's best writer, ain't the world's best speller, but when I believe in something, I'm the loudest yeller. If we fix it so you can't make no money on war, well, we'll all forget what we were killing folks for. Find us a peace job, equal and free, well, dumb matters do pop in a salty sea, well, this makes Stetson Kennedy. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to purchase great Florida books, find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. Janie Gould has this remembrance of Watke's Department Store, which opened in Vero Beach in 1942. Until the first shopping center opened in 1960, most stores in Vero Beach were in one small area that some now call the historic downtown. The late Bill Wadke Sr. opened Wadke's department store in 1942. His children worked in the store at various times, and daughter Kay Wadke Trent was involved in the business full-time for 33 years. Wadke's was one of the first stores in Vero to have air conditioning. You had to put that in your advertising. That was a drawing card to get people to come in. I bet some people came in just to get out of the hot weather. Yes, and we had a lady who drove her car right through the window and maybe she was going to get cooled off. One of those things where she put her foot on the wrong pedal but came right in through the window, over the window, into the store. Nobody was hurt. She was just embarrassed. The store was on 14th Avenue, which was the main retail street in Vero Beach in those days. One of the big sellers in those early years were hats. Hats and gloves and girdles. That's true. At that time, women, when they dressed up, you weren't completely dressed up if you didn't have hat and gloves. And you always also had a girdle and stockings on. It didn't matter how hot it was. That was the thing to do, and so we all did it. We went to church, we had hat and gloves, because most of the churches wanted their women to have their heads covered. We sold men's felt hats, dress hats, and of course when they went to church, they had to take them off. Keeping men's hats sized was a problem. Ladies, there were no sizes, so you just found one that fit. What about men's hats? How were they sized back then? They were head sized. You would take a tape measure and just put around their head, and that's the way they were sized. The finer felt hats came with a mold inside that kept it in shape. It was a shaper so that they knew that they had a good hat that was nice. Many, many of the men wore felt hats. Even in Vero and in the summertime and before widespread air conditioning in Florida, people dressed up more then than they do now. Oh, absolutely. Women that went out to lunch and men, if they had an office job, They wore a hat when they went to work and it went on a shelf or something. This was just part of the dress code for adults at that time. You sold a lot of little white gloves? Yes, and I remember now having them for children. Back in those days, Easter meant a new outfit for everybody, from hats and gloves for children, new shoes, new everything. 
and it didn't get worn until I walked in church on Easter Sunday morning. Are you talking dressing up your mother's generation, your generation as well? When did it really end? Well, I was married in 1960, and I can remember having hat boxes with big-brimmed hats. Mainly they were for church, because our church still required your head covered, and it was so much prettier to have a hat than just a veil or a scarf you know, on your head. I think they went quite heavily through the 50s and then in the early 60s for those on special church days. The gloves went right along with it. Bathing caps for women? Did you sell them? Yes, we did. We sold bathing suits and we also had the bathing caps, mainly a seasonal thing. I think a lot of the private pools just about insisted that you have them. I think it might have been state law at one time. I can't imagine wearing a bathing cap these days, though. No, I couldn't either. And there weren't head sizes. If you had a small head or a big head, you could be uncomfortable. <laughs> Kay Wadke Trent was the second woman elected president of the local Chamber of Commerce. In 1960, the Wadkes opened a new store in Miracle Mile Shopping Center. They closed the downtown store in 1980, but operated the second store for nearly 40 years. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. I've got gadgets and gizmos of plenty. I've got who's it's and what's it's galore. You want thingamabobs? I've got 20. But who cares? No big deal. I want more. I want to be where the people are. I want to see, want to see them Required for jumping, dancing, strolling along down the what's that word again? Street oh. up where they walk, up where they run, up where they stay all day in the sun, wandering free. Wish I could be part of that world. Decades before Disney came to Florida, and even longer before Disney's The Little Mermaid. Wikiwachi Springs attracted visitors to Florida with their mermaids. Bill Dudley has more. You just feel as if you're in this other world. It's like nothing else you've ever experienced. 75-year-old Ginger Stanley Hollowell remembers the day in 1950 when as a high school student she first swam in the crystalline waters of Wikiwachi Spring. It was cold. <laughs> it was very cold, but after the shock wears off, all of a sudden you look around and it's this wonderful, magical place. All of the fish and the underwater growth was gorgeous back then. White sandy bottom, and you looked deep, deep into this gorge. It goes down to like 120 feet, but you could see forever. In 1950, Hollowell was trying out for the job of mermaid at an up-and-coming Florida tourist destination. To me, this was a wonderful summer job. I was looking for something to do for the summer. But she stayed, swimming at Wikiwachi for three more years. Later, she worked as a stunt double for leading ladies in movies like The Creature from the Black Lagoon and pursued a lifelong career in modeling and teaching. And in the summer of 2007, along with other mermaid alumni, Ginger Hollowell participated in the 60-year reunion of an attraction that for many people once helped to define the Florida dream. From the beginning, Florida was seen as this almost like another world 
from, for the visitors that came. Florida native Lou Vickers. Her recent book, Wikiwachi, City of Mermaids, tells the story of Newton Perry, the park's founder, who envisioned an underwater exhibition, part ballet and part novelty act, featuring young women as mermaids. Newt Perry had this thing in him about underwater. Newt's daughter told me he knew that if he put beautiful girls in the spring, <laughs> that people would come, but it's more. I think it's more than that. It's looking out and seeing these people doing something you couldn't do, and you're fascinated by that. It's very athletic. They're holding their breath. It began in 1947 with a small boxcar-sized audience area 10 feet below the surface. A few years later, business was booming. We filled that theater five times a day. It had already become that popular. People would stand in line and wait for these shows. Get in with what? Americans wanted to see and what Floridians wanted America to see. Florida as wild and wacky and different. and any- Wofford College historian Tracy Revels grew up in North Florida. I think Wikiwachi would fit into what I'd call sort of a golden age of tourism in the 50s and 60s when you had so many different little unusual or oddball attractions and a family of four could literally spend two weeks traveling the state going to something different and entertaining and amusing every day. Wiki-watchy, spring of live mermaids on Florida's west coast. The American Broadcasting Company bought the park in 1959, enlarging the theater to its present capacity of 500 and ushering in the attraction's glory days. Wikiwachi became a household word, playing host to celebrities like Elvis, Howard Hughes, and Esther Williams. Visitors from around the world marveled at performers who seemed to be floating in air. I can't tell you how many times when we were swimming there, tourists would come up to us and say, well, you're not really wet, are you? Because underwater your hair floats, so it actually looks dry. And they go, well, it's mirrored right? It's tricks with mirrors because if you look at it, it almost doesn't look real. I, and people would touch us to see if our hair was really wet, and it was, it was funny. Yeah, yeah. You'd be dripping all over them. They'd yeah. go, you're not really wet, are you? Twin sisters Holly Hall and Dolly Heltzley. As the Harris twins, they swam at Wikiwachi from 1967 to 71, which was also the year that Walt Disney World opened in Central Florida. With a sharp drop in attendance, many of the state's roadside attractions closed. Somehow the mermaids were able to hold on. In recent times, the 60-year anniversary and an ongoing legal dispute with the South Florida Water Management District has brought new attention to the park and its role in history as a Florida tourist icon. A lot of people want out-of-the-way things now. I think we've all sort of got past the, wow, Disney World is the greatest thing in Florida. I think a lot of people especially baby boomers, are very nostalgic. A lot of them want their children to see the things that they saw. Looking back on the camaraderie of their youth, the shared experience of performing amidst the beauty and purity of the spring itself, the mermaids are anxious that Wikiwachi can continue for generations to come. You were performing and it was very hard work, but when you're underneath that water, it's just like... Magical. It's definitely magical. I think anybody who has ever swam feels the same way. You loved it while you were there. You will always be a part of it, and you will love it to continue. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. To find out how to become a member of the Florida Historical Society, go to myfloridahistory.org and click the Join Now button. Members receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week.
I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.